Thank you. I'd like to welcome all the delegates. This is the, it's easy to think big when you're small. Uh, I would like to thank Woodworks British Columbia for sponsoring the refreshment break. And I would like to introduce uh, Sarah Fowler, who will be facilitating today. And um, the speakers that we have will be Sarah Fowler, councillor from the village of Tassus, Dennis Buchanan, mayor of the village of Alert Bay, Julie Colburn, mayor from the village of Zabalis, Dennis Dugas, mayor from the district of Port Hardy, and Mako Noel, mayor from the district of Yukuit. And I hope I didn't pronounce anything wrong. And I will hand it over to you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Mark. Just the mic because I'm quite short. Special mention, oh, get the clicker, to our hosts, the Association of Vancouver Island Coastal Communities, this conference center, and the City of Victoria. My name is Sarah Fowler, and it is my joy to highlight the work of my peers in local government and their unique communities here for the ABICC. I was so happy to read in the 20. 22 Code of Conduct number 7, all AVICC members are viewed as equals regardless of their population, location, or the ability to t attend the local conference. Yep. That being said, there are many microclimates in British Columbia that are place specific and have heard it and I have heard it said that if all the small communities and unincorporated areas were counted together, it would account for the third largest population. <laughs> Personally, I won't be missing any opportunities to talk about my village in relation to here, there, and elsewhere. back button. Uh, <laughs> Tassis, the birthplace of British Columbia, is located in Nooka Sound on Mauichit Muchulat First Nation and in the Strathcona Regional District. Foreshore at low tide, in this photo we are facing south towards Uquat or Farnley Cove, which is the capital of the nation culturally. Um, Our closest neighboring community is the Ballas over the mountain or by boat. It is a long, bumpy ride. Down the road, head Bay Forest Service and to the village of Tassis from Campbell River or vice versa. On that journey, you pass through Gold River, which is where this boot is located. It marks the start of the Great Walk, historically run by the local Lions Club. As you can see, a lot of things are happening from the peaks of the canopy to the vast depths under the surface. The mate for the carved wood birding boot is located outside Captain Muir's Elementary Secondary School. Although it hasn't happened in nearly a decade, it is worth mentioning. It remains one of Canada's original show us what you're made of ultra marathons. That's the Great Walk. <clears throat> this great team is this, oh, um, my, it doesn't match. This great team is a secondary class at the local school during the Missoula Theatre performance for the play Tortoise and the Hare by Aesop. From a log-laden barge of yesteryear to our nocturnal wildlife, recently sighted outside my home, we have many stories. And this one starts with coalitions to find ways to support protective services and community safety off the beaten track. I would like to introduce Mayor Dennis Dugas of Port Hardy. He's been a resident since 1970. He's worked at McMillan Blodell in the logging industry. In 1974, he started a new career working for the District of Port Hardy in the Public Works Department as a water treatment and wastewater treatment plant certified operator. In 2000, he worked for EPCOR Water Services for 13 years as Port Hardy's Capital Projects Coordinator, then back to employment with the District of Port Hardy, retiring in October 2014. Over the past 50 years, 50 plus years, Dennis has been involved with a number of community organizations and activities, Vice President of Port Hardy and District Chamber of Commerce, Filomi Days Committee, North Island Seniors Housing Foundation, and as of 2014, elected as council and now mayor. 
As small rural communities, we have to form coalitions to get our voices heard. For example, grant funding for fire equipment and emergency infrastructures. Also, each region needs to build strong relationships with local indigenous nations to get support for common interests regarding health, education, transportation, wild salmon returns, and in addition for us on the North Island, uh, reliable electric power supply. We produce it, but we can't use it. Let's work together for a better tomorrow for all of us. And please welcome our first speaker, Mayor Dugas from Port Hardy. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, I'd just like, like to first acknowledge that uh, Port Hardy is on the traditional territory of the Kogius people, so we have a territory that's here today. So thank you for being here. Uh, when, I, when I saw that title, and actually when Sarah uh, did the title, and she says, it's easy to think big when you're small. Well, yeah. <laughs> think about it. But uh, when, when Mark stands up, I don't think I feel that big. But, but you know, that, that's really what it's all about. It's, it's, it's what Sarah's already mentioned. It's all about working together in our communities. And uh, over the past, this past couple of years, it's been hard for all of us uh, when we're dealing with uh, the pandemic and, and different things. I know she's moving to some of those wonderful slides that we have from our community. That uh, I think the most important thing for us was to start to sit down and start talking about what we can do, not just as a community, but what we can do as, as a region and what we can do as an ABICC. And one of the things that we did do back in 2020, after we put a resolution in in 2017, it was B61, and it was basically what basically asking for the provincial government over the last 20 years, asking them through the insurance premium tax, which they take off of us every time that somebody pays tax for their house or for their car, you pay a premium tax for that. And that goes back into the coffers of the provincial government, but it never goes back into firefighting services. So we went back to them and said, that's not fair. So it's fair, especially for small rural communities. We need to have access to some of that funding, well, especially when we're purchasing, purchasing large expensive pieces of equipment or infrastructure like if you're building a fire hole i know that leslie beard was talking to me about that and she had gone to the federal government she'd gone to the provincial government trying to get money to pay for to help pay for the fire hole that they built in their community which was 4.2 million dollars never got one penny never got anything to help and we had to buy a fire truck a number of years ago which was very important for our community 1.2 million dollars cost that for that fire truck no help now we do know that we, when we lobbied the province, we did get some money. They did come up and say, yes, we could give some money for training, we could give some money for a number of different things that we're working with, but it never come up to the, to the extent that you would think that you would need when you're paying $1.2 million. They said you can use the gas tax now. And all of us that get a little bit of gas tax, well that's great that they say you can use the gas tax, but usually we have some of that already allocated for other projects. So it's been very, very difficult for small rural communities. And I, and I was very pleased to say today that we put a couple resolutions in. One was R2, which was Emergency Equipment Provincial Procurement, which basically what we wanted to do, which represents all small rural communities, not only, only in ABICC, but in the whole province, to get the opportunity that when we have to go purchase these big pieces of equipment that are very expensive, that the provincial government helps us. Actually, they have some kind of a process that can help us so that when we go out there, we're not going out there by ourselves trying to buy this equipment when we can get some maybe some help from the province. And I'm sure that as a province, as we already know, when something goes to UBCM and it's approved, what they do is they download that on UBCM and say, okay, take care of it. I don't care. As, lo as long as it works, right? As long as we get that opportunity to talk to them. So some of the other things that we've worked on and we think is very, very important is our collaboration and working together with our local indigenous nations. That's so important for us as we move forward. And we're very proud as a community to say that back in 2014, Jesse Hempel was one of our counselors. She brought, to the, she brought to us and said, we need to have a First Nations Relationship Committee. And we, and we have one. And it's been very active. And actually a chair of that committee, um, our counselor, Corbett Labatt, Labatt, Pat Corbett Labatt's with us today. And it's, it's been something that helps to have that relationship with our community. And through that, now we do have a relationship agreement with the call youth. And not only that, now we're starting to work on other relationships with regards to our First Nations and our, and our community, with regards to our community forest. We're starting to develop partnerships. 
with the indigenous nations that we work within their traditional territory. We're sitting down talking to them, bringing them to the table. And that's so important as we move forward. But not only that, I'm very proud that the North Island, with regards to aquaculture and for forestry, that we have a group that we got together, five mayors, that sat down and said, we need to work as a coalition to try to help get our point across. Because if you go there individually, sometimes they don't listen very well. So we have Andy Adams at uh, City of Campbell River. We have uh, our baker, he's right here with us, the, the mayor of, of uh, Sailor. <laughs> we have Brad Unger, the mayor of Gold River. And we have Gabby Wickstrom. I'm not sure if Gabby's here or not. She's oh, in she's another in presentation. One, but she's involved with that committee. And we get together regularly and we talk about our issues. And we, sit, we get letters, we sign them all together as a group. And, and it has a better impact, a bigger impact as we move forward. So I'm very excited about what we can do as small rural communities. I think that if we all work together, then obviously our voices can be heard. And as uh, Sarah already mentioned, uh, when I first got elected, I, I looked at all the small rural communities in the province that were under 5,000, and I, the numbers that I added up to was like over 130,000 people that we represent, the small rural communities. And I think that if we work together, our, definitely we get a better opportunity to get our voices heard. So thank you for coming out today. Um, I'm very happy to be a part of this group here. This is another coalition of us here talking about these things that are important to us. And I'm sure that the other mayors and representatives here, they're gonna, they're gonna tell you some of the very interesting things that's happening in their communities and how important it is. And thank you again for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to come here to listen to us today. Thank you so much, Dennis. This is us leaving Vancouver Island at Port McNeil Ferry Terminal to get to Alert Bay. Our next presenter is Mayor Dennis Buchanan. He is in his first term as Mayor of Alert Bay, which is situated on the traditional territory of the Nambies First Nation. Dennis has served his community as both Fire Chief and Unit Chief on BCAS. He knows full well how difficult it is for small communities to get funding for new fire equipment. Small rural communities do not have the same tax base as larger centers, which enables them to purchase the equipment they require. Now I ask Mayor Buchanan of Alert Bay to speak to how best we can be prepared. Thank you. Thank you and welcome everybody. And, uh, I've been asked to speak today on uh, working with First Nations and that. Uh, you're taller. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, education, communication, and an open mind are what I consider to be the three key ingredients to working with First Nations people. And the open mind especially because we all have preconceived ideas about people of other races or cultures. And I was speaking with Chief Don Swanwick the other day and, and uh, we were talking about, you know, this and, and working together and he said yeah one of the things he says is preconceived ideas he says I went to Texas a few years ago and I had this preconceived idea that I was gonna see a redneck cowboy in boots jeans and a 10 gallon hat and he said I didn't see them he said so we do have preconceived ideas and we have to get rid of those and I'll touch a little bit more later on those three key ingredients but I want to give you a little bit of history about uh, the village of Alert Bay. We share a small island uh, with the Nungis, First Nation, the Wilala U Area Council, and the Regional District of Mount Waddington. The first three represent a few hundred people, several hundred people actually, and the last a few dozen. The most prominent nation is the Nungis, First Nation. The Wilala U Area Council represents four other people nations, the Village Island, Turner Island, New Vancouver, and Guilford Island. And I am not going to attempt the names, I haven't had enough practice on those. <laughs> but they do share a common language, Kwakwala, as well as intricate family ties, complex cultural practices, and sophisticated laws governing social interactions and resource use. Each entity has its own story, 
but the stories intertwine to shape the communities that we live on the island. The community has gone, undergone massive uh, transformations through the last two centuries. Alert Bay at one time was the hub between Vancouver and Prince Rupert. We had the Department of Transport radio station, we had six hotels, four fuel stations, British Columbia Packers, Canadian Fishing Company, Nelson's Brothers Fishing Company, uh, jewelry stores, radio station, newspapers, jewelry stores. We had a small Chinatown, um, and we've lost all those. So we've gone through a massive tra uh, transition. And fortunately for the Nuggies people, they, throughout all those years, they struggled mightily to keep hold of their traditions, their culture, and their language. And fortunately, I am glad that they did struggle and stuck with it. In the 60s, they built the big house, their traditional longhouse. And in the 80s, they did rebuilt the Umista Cultural Center. They then lobbied to get all the artifacts and art that was confiscated by the federal government due to the potlatch laws. And a lot of that artwork and stuff was shipped all over the world to various museums and private collectors. Andrea Sanborn was the administrator at the Umista at that time, and I had the privilege to work with her uh, when I first moved over to being a grocery store. When she got hold of something, she didn't let it go. She worked mightily and she got the majority of those artifacts and that artwork back at the Mystic Cultural Center. And since that point, the, the amount of tourists that that has brought, not only to Alert Bay, but to the whole North Island, it has benefited every community on the North Island. And in the late uh, 60s, the Nungis First Nation and the village of Alert Bay cooperated on joint activities such as lobbying governments and looking at new models for funding services. The relationship was formalized in 1999 with the landmark Alert Bay Accord. And it's a unique art, uh, art unique in British Columbia, this agreement, and perhaps in Canada. It describes how both communities will work together in a relationship defined by goodwill, shared purpose, and trust. The accord was reviewed uh, 10 years later and was updated in 2012. And the cooperation is evident in a range of wide projects including a sewage treatment plant, a recycling program, a trail network all over the island, and the latest fire truck was brought with assistance from the First Nations funding. Our public works with the Nungis, the municipality, and the Wheelalayu Public Works all share work. If one part of the island needs help, our public works will go down there. Their public works come and help us. Our public works foreman is an excellent mechanic. He has performed quite a few repairs on Nungis equipment. So, it, you know, the cooperation, it benefits the whole island. In March of 2020, another important collaboration among the island community took place when we had the large serious outbreak of COVID-19 on the island before the vaccines were available. And it called on the joint efforts of the Nungis First Nations, Wheelalayu Area Council, and the village of Alert Bay. And we were supported by VHA, First Nations Health, Emergency Management BC, and numerous other entities. But it was the close cooperation amongst the three major governments on the island. And uh, we did tri-authority videos, which was posted on Facebook, and the Emergency Operations Center website that we established, as well as the, uh, each council's own websites. And the work that was accomplished has been reported in the Canadian Medical Association Journal as an example of the Indigenous settler collab, you know, collaboration and cooperation that benefits the whole community. 
And I'd like to go back and consider what the three main key ingredients are. We need to educate, you, educate ourselves and acknowledge what took place when the colonizer settlers arrived. <coughs> we need to learn about their protocols and their customs and their plans for the future. We need to go into that education process with an open mind and rid it of any preconceived notions or ideas that we may have. An open mind will absorb more wisdom and knowledge than a closed one. When the grave sites were found in Camelos, the village of Lord Bay lowered the flags to half-mast out of respect. And they are still down to this day, as Lord Bay was one of the communities that did have a residential school. Mayor and council decided they were going to stay down until the Numbies First Nation come to us and say, okay, we feel now that, you know, you can raise them. Communication is a very important part of working together. There are numerous ways of commuting, communicating, speaking is one, facial expressions and body language is another. And that body language and facial expressions will tell the person whether you're interested in what they have to say or not. Listening is sometimes difficult to do as we start to respond to what this person is saying before they've been finished what they were saying. So we miss a lot of the content of what the individual is going to say. It's better to listen all the way through before you form a response so that when you answer, you are on point and on topic. And we have a spent tendency to speak from here rather than here where the First Nations people speak from. And I think we need to start learning to speak from here. You need to learn the customs and protocols of the bands in your area and then contact them, set up a meeting, share a meal, and have an open, honest conversation. The Numbees have been communicating very well with these those in their traditional territories. They have partnership agreements with Western Forest Products, Orca Sand and Gravel, Atler Resources, and Pogeast Power, and they are working on more. It is much easier if we all work together. There is no obstacle that we cannot overcome, and just imagine what can be achieved in and around your communities. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. My next speaker, Julie Colburn, is the current mayor of Sabalas, which is on the unceded First Nations lands of the Hattasat-Chinikit territory. She has served her community for 13 years through three terms as a councillor and almost one as mayor. Her passion, as well as public service, is her career, which allows her to work cooperatively with and in service of the nations that are in close proximity to the community. She has lived in Sabalas for the past 25 years and has seen many changes, including demographics, population, and sources of economy in this rural and remote community. Join me in thanking Mayor Colburn of Sabalas to address the importance of human capital. Good afternoon, all. Um, we are the smallest of the small. Um, uh, we are on the unceded First Nations land of Hattasachinichka territory in Zabalas. We're on the west coast of Vancouver Island, 42 kilometers down uh, Forest Service Road. So I'm going to give you a little snapshot of Zabalas. I always thought it took a, a certain type of person to live in a small, rural, remote community, and that was before this mass exodus of these people from these big cities. Um, a frontier type, right, with this, you know, wanting self-sufficiency and the community feeling where the air is clean and all those kinds of things, this, this want for something simpler. This RV park was once full with loggers and contractors and we had lots of services in community. We had a couple of stores, we had a couple of restaurants and as you can see, things are a little different now. Uh, as the people leave, so too do the services. It's changing all throughout BC, where resource towns are now having to diversify because we have time for that, right? In these tiny little communities, got all the time in the world. 
Some of our hotels have weathered the storm. Some are new, some are world-class fishing destinations with amenities and a good business model, as long as the good fishing holds out. Um, we do have a store. We don't have a restaurant anymore, and we've got some pretty quiet streets. It's much different from the community events that used to happen on a weekly basis when the logging was good and you could live where you logged. A good portion of our buildings in Zabalas are not utilized permanently. Uh, some are vacation homes, some are just vacant, some have seasonal staff coming into them, some are short-term rentals. And some are used two weekends out of a year. And that presents its own problems. So we're the same as most places in, in that, you know, there's a lack of rental availability. We currently have, currently have zero rental availability in Zabalas. And there isn't much on the market anymore either. As we get smaller and lose tax bases from resource-based industry, the nation, which is our neighbor, the Hadassah Chinookit First Nation, has room to expand. They and the other Nuchalit-speaking nation, the Nuchalit First Nation, which is another 12 kilometers down the Forest Service Road, are our partners in almost every initiative we have, as it should be, and with much respect to them, for the land that we occupy. Um, a good example is our fire truck. Um, they receive the fire truck, they give it to the municipality, they get a reduced cost servicing agreement. I'm not gonna talk about the minimum requirement we have to have for numbers of firefighters because this section is about partnering. <laughs> we have to work together. We have a sewer project happening to serve their growth plans because they have them. We're talking about community safety planning, and we find ways to leverage challenges into opportunities. Because we must, because we're gonna survive. And thinking big when you're small means partnering up. We partner up with other communities, with districts, with industry. We partner with whoever we can to ensure our survival. Uh, there will come up a picture about our airplane dock closure. <laughs> As our infrastructure crumbles, we're trying to do as much as we can with what little we have, you know, a small number of folios means minimal taxes, to save, repair, to do big projects in little chunks. So as an example, the lot that the dock is connected to is a provincial lease. It has many stakeholders, including the village, and it has many problems. The underpinning that's going on with the tidal forces and the lack of good construction material underneath, it was built in the 50s, so there's organic material underneath the chip seal, is returning to the earth and it's breaking down and causing sinkholes. This is our main commercial area. Every person and every business in town touches this piece of property daily. It is our airplane dock, our store, our gas talk, the ice plant, and we're proposing to think big in small steps, to do a massive overhaul of this entire lot, ensuring we use it to the best of its capabilities with the input from all the stakeholders, and we're gonna do it in about eight grants over 15 years. Because <laughs> that's what we do. And what else can we do? We have a staff of four. CAO, Public Works Municipal Clerk. We obviously have an infrastructure deficit. We have a capacity issue and we don't have a planning or an engineering department. So we need room. We need some help from the, from the province and some, some efficiencies from them. We need their experts. We need a granting process where we aren't fighting against each other or ourselves. We need to be able to have a report by, done by their professionals and then not have our CAO sign off on it because last time I checked she wasn't an engineer. We need the province to stop downloading to our communities or send their staff in so they can do it for us. We need grants with longer lead times and we need to be a part of deciding what grants are becoming available next. We need a replacement or an equivalent grant with some grant funding that's already been directed. So does anybody want to talk about the rural dividend? 
that would help us right now. What if, what if small communities had advance notice? Just a month of advance notice of, of opportunities that are happening and grants. Our departments could use the extra time. We need dedicated provincial liaisons to each community, each small community under 5,000. And the ever-changing legislation that costs us time and money to navigate and all the repercussions, like we just don't have the capacity or the time to fight. Hand up, not hand out, that might apply here. So this would be a real opportunity for change for empowerment and putting these small communities on a more even playing field in this widening gap of have and have not communities. It would make us competitive in a real way and there's opportunity for more balance. We must start thinking of the sustainability of these small communities where lots of these grant dollars came from for years. And where don't forget, people want to visit and they want to live and they might want to eat while they're there. So our council was uh, our council, the picture of our council was our council at the beginning of the term. Did you know that if no one runs for council, the province will make an exception and you can just like appoint someone off the street? <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> it's a great example of lack of capacity. We've had three by-elections in three years. Some people find the term too long. Some people realize what they've gotten into. <laughs> Some people have health concerns. It, we're all doing so much in small towns. So in small towns across BC, not just here on the island, your mayors have full-time jobs that they juggle with their mayor responsibilities. Your local fireman has a full-time job, is a school trustee, a Canadian ranger, and a paramedic, all at the same time. We all volunteer in one day, way or another, and we and the constituents are tired. <laughs> We've done this for years with so many different hats, and we try to attract these young, capable professionals to fill this capacity need that we so plainly have with no housing. Um, but what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And how do you retain these people when there's no restaurant to visit on a Friday night? Or their Wi-Fi without high-speed internet. I did a, a, a speed test at my house before I came. I get 0.5 megabytes per second upload and 1.8 megabytes per second download in my house. Yet, we are resilient and we are flexible and we make things work. Because when you're this small, you dream big and you take care of business and you volunteer and you work and you serve on boards and you do community service and you help your neighbors. You build community every single day. And we're so lucky to have the communities we do. And we all do a lot in these small communities. And then we actually have social lives, if you can believe it. We have time for that. And just when you think your small community, you know, you've, you've got things working in the right direction. You've been mayor for three years, you know, everything is your plan, got a plan for the future. You have a fire at the doorstep a global pandemic, and a seven-day power outage. <laughs> so I think there are a couple tsunami scares in there too this term, right? We do emergency well in our small corner of the island because we have to and we have experience. We work together with our neighbors, with the nations, and we take care of each other. Again, we volunteer, but the complexities and the paperwork requirements of dealing with emergency management BC is not a volunteer job. <laughs> Our staff still is not caught up from the power outage in January. The two staff that are working on that paperwork. We pivot and we're, we're resilient and we come with solutions because we got to think outside the box and come up with these ideas. So the previous granting ideas, those are some ideas that we're coming with and we'd like the province to consider. Want to think outside the box? How about decentralizing Victoria? Wouldn't it be great if some of those people wanting to escape big cities had jobs in the smaller communities? What about large companies with satellite offices who offer their employees this like different lifestyle and, and it's out of the hum of the cities? The high speed is coming and with it, I hope new opportunities to further diversify, adapt and grow. Because when your municipality 
it, when the population is hovering around 100, one person coming to community is 1%, family of five, 5%. The required number of firefighters I wasn't gonna talk about before, that's 15% of our population. So in a small town, that's big. Thank you so much, Julie. It's uh, gotta be fighter when you're a small town. I am introduced Mako no Mayor Mako Noel of Ukulele by simply reading a quote from him. It's a small theme that has lost all their key resource sector employees. How do we you rebuild and make your community to a level that we all know that it takes to make them hum like they once did? Tourism won't save us all. Making a community where people live and work is all we want to see for our communities. We are not asking too much. So without further ado, I'd like to call Mike up. Well, thank you, and um, okay. You've arrived. You're on Humboldt Street, you're good to go. Um, I think, you know, listening to the, the way the speakers have been, and I think listening to some of the council, and the, or my council that are in the back seat here, um, Julie, I think you just, it's a perfect segue for what I'm about to say, because every resource town is, is a ballast. I don't think it matters if it's 100 or if it's Gabby's town of 2,000. We're, you know, we're, we're panicking, right? And we're trying to make decisions on the fly. Uh, I don't think we're supported like we should, so I'm gonna try to stay to my notes and stay on time. But, um, you know, um, I, I feel very comfortable with this group because, you know, I think every time we meet, we, we, we talk small town stuff. And, uh, you know, I was also a forestry worker for 25 years and born and raised in Yuki. And I firsthand knowledge of the struggles in these communities when, you know, people higher up make decisions, whether it's a fish farm or someone's losing a license. Um, those, those are dramatic to a community and we're not talking just on tax base here we're talking families are being uh, broken up we're talking alcoholism we're talking many many things that are associated with that so um, here we go it's not going to work now um, so for Ukulele we had the same story but we're a little bit easy because we went from resource based we did a transition to tourism so uh, before we get into tourism you know, we have a couple remaining uh, um, resource sectors, and we're the, still the largest, guys might say no, but we're the largest ground fish port in British Columbia. Uh, for many people, probably don't eat ground fish, but it is a big protein around the world. Um, at any given time, there can be 20 semis living town uh, feeding uh, ground fish in the world. So uh, we, we move ahead, and, um, and some of the negative impacts now with ground fish uh, fleets is offshore processing is becoming very popular and, and who wouldn't want to do that? You do with less. And uh, there's some real big neg negative effects for a, small, for a small community. Was I not supposed to say that? No, okay, okay. They're laughing at themselves. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Pictures of what I'm saying have nothing to do with each other. So, uh, <laughs> and I apologize. I should have been more prepared on the, on the slide end. But, you know, for us in a small community, we know ground fish is important, but um, you know, if they're going to start bringing less fish to um, to the shoreline, then we have to look at our water systems a little bit differently as well, right? So we don't need such a big water system. Uh, secondly, um, I'm proud to say that we also have a community forest, the Park Community Forest uh, Corporation, two shareholders. We're partners with uh, Christian's community. Where is she? Is she in here? Oh, there she is. So with the Toolbot Nation, right? And, uh, you know, I went to school with Kirsten, so I'm a little connected to the community and very proud. We have a 50-50 partnership. Uh, again, these are the one of the things that uh, for a community, when there's no restrictions, what you can spend money on, that's kind of a novel idea. Um, so this partnership, which has been around for a long time, but the community forest didn't really come, you know, come to something until about five years ago and we got very fortunate where we are and uh, with the with the markets that they are we've been able to split between our two communities seven million dollars in the last uh, in the last four years and we have a few more cuts which are going to benefit the two communities um, there are three board members from both communities the, on our side they're not from council they're chosen from the community we have a, a neutral chair uh, the partnership has, again, like I said, uh, unrestricted what we spend the money on, which is a blessing. Um, and because, you know, traditionally, 
as we know the resource base here, that money would have been gone to the province and stumpage. Don't they tell you that, Dennis? Or the timber companies would take the rest and leave town, like they did in Julie's town, where she's wishing they uh, left a little bit more behind. Okay, so anyway, back to tourism. That's what Euclid's known for today. You know, uh, they had a real. They, in, uh, it was uh, the only choice that they had in the '90s. Uh, you know, I grad in 1990. Um, it was a it was devastating for the community. So I can I can relate to Julie and. Um, <laughs> But Expo 86 came along and everybody's getting ready for Expo 86, so bed and bed, the bed and breakfast movement moves along and everybody starts to, a few people start to put the bed and breakfasts. And uh, that was wonderful because that really gave the primary use of a home um, a different option for the people, the residents that lived in it. So, and how handy for those that wish to bring some extra money into their home by having a bed and breakfast. And if you feel tourism is the next natural step for your town, you know, it really needs to be kept on a short rope. You know, I just want to give a couple examples that uh, for us as council, I, I was a councilman uh, for a term and first term mayor. And uh, one of the things that our predecessors did, they didn't allow uh, VR2 zoning, which is vacation rental in residential zones. So um, I'll ask you guys all one question, you know, in your community, can I go buy a house or a condo? and do a nightly rental in it, right? For some of you, it's probably a yes. Some of you maybe a no. In our community, it's a no. You cannot buy a primary uh, home and do a nightly rental on it. That is prohibited and illegal. And it's been for about 30 years. Um, so when you heal it, a primary <laughs> residence cannot be rented out nightly. The secondary use can be a nightly based on the square footage. This council and the past 30 year councils have kept that line. And that in itself may not seem like a big deal, but it's protected our neighborhoods. It's kept homes as a primary use for the residents. And um, we're a small town, as Julie said earlier, our homes need to be fenced that work and live in the community, not for second home ownership. There are no nightly rentals that are permitted on residentials and uh, residences without a rezoning to a BR2, vacation rental two. Over the years, I think there might be three or four properties that kind of snuck in because they probably had a good short story why they needed it and, and like and the, those own original owners probably don't live in town anymore. Um, then, uh, then we move forward to developments that require, require rezoning and, uh, and so for us as a council, I'm very proud that we focus on uh, what the residents need and uh, so during this, tome, this term, we've been able to uh, rezone land to host a uh, 48 unit apartment building, which will be market based, 33 affordable housing units, and uh, up to I think 105 uh, housing development. Uh, so sounds great. When we buy in, well, well, and all those, it's a very clear understanding that all those properties will not permit nightly rentals and uh, and uh, we're building neighborhoods. So moving forward, because I look at the councillors, because those, those three really already play a big role in all that kind of stuff, so it's important. Okay. We're trying to find some short, short term. Oh, five minutes will be done. Two minutes will be. You done. got time. Okay. A lot of time. I'll take a breath, then we're good. <laughs> Try to do up to you, Sarah. Uh, so you know some of the housing issues that we've done. We've done some short, trying some creative things. Some of them don't work. Some of them do. You know, we probably heard we tried RV temporary use permits. People want to live in RVs. It's awkward because they're all over the place. But so we're just trying to control them a bit. So there's actually a bit of a process. They don't end up there for 20 years. So the fire chief is involved, etc. That's working. Yes and no. We've been successful with a few housing agreements for long-term staffing. We're currently working on secondary detached dwellings for options for homeowners that would like to offer that for long-term tenants. Uh, and on a smaller note with the Chamber of Commerce, I believe it was at 14 units they did for employees above a, of a motel that wasn't really want to be a motel, so we, we, we negotiated a nice little sweet deal there. And, um, you know, so none of these little solutions short term are perfect, it's because we really can't do anything out with, without money, right? And uh, so it's just trailers and, you know, have pregnant ideas here. But uh, so then, when, then we kind of were fortunate where we where we live that uh, we have MRDT, so hotel tax. Sorry about using that phrase, Rochelle. And um, so, so that means that when you come to Yuki, you get charged a two percent hotel tax, right? And people wonder what that gets. 
And over the last 12 or 13 years, it's been a challenge because every town wanted to advertise as, hey, come to Yuki, you know, where the place is to be. And, um, and that worked out well. And then a few years ago, the province allowed um, municipalities like ourselves that were charging it to actually start to, um, I don't know if you guys do that, uh, uh, the use our online platform which is Airbnb and et cetera, they were starting to charge their 2%, which they weren't prior to that. And so we, uh, we made that easy decision of putting that 1% from, airline, from um, online platforms into a affordable housing reserve. It means nothing when you got 50 grand in there, but you know, we fast forward three years later, I think it's over a million dollars because it's about 250 grand a year that we're putting into it. And, uh, and currently we are, um, we're working on a um, re renewal of our five-year plan, and uh, with a one percent increase, and that one inc and one percent increase will go directly to the affordable housing uh, reserve, which will mean that there'll be annual funding of about three hundred fifty thousand dollars going towards reserve fund. So it's going to be awesome for the next band, the bunch uh, after this election, because they're going to be coming in and probably have a million and a half dollars and they know they're going to have some secure funding, so they're going to be able to come up with their own regional and local housing initiative. So as a theme for today, we do like to think big. You know, Dennis, is a guy, Dennis and I are short guys, but I love dreaming, and it's fun being in a small town because we can dream. And, oh, Jesus, that's fun. Somebody's calling. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, man. So our next big move uh, for us is uh, a medical clinic, you know, uh, we've been taking care of, uh, we're doing more of a local approach. Um, we really focused the last few years, how's this going to look and where's it going to go and, um, and things are moving along. Island Health is, you know, I'd say that, we're, you know, generally they're, they're, we're being uh, better than usual and uh, the regional district is working very well. And uh, so, but recently, uh, things have changed. It went from uh, where should the building go and what's the design and, and where, who should be the tenants. It's now gone to how do we take over the business from the independent contractor with the local doctor because they're all they're they're no different than the, the grocery store, right? Should I, should I say this all out? You're looking up like I shouldn't say nothing. And then uh, so you know this is a radical change, and I think for us. Um, you know, we are in a transition to secure better medical services. Clinics are closing in the province, and our independently owned clinic is near the same state. Our council is committed to finding a solution to ensure it doesn't close. We're working behind the scenes to ensure it's redesigned. We are fortunate to have some options. I look forward to announcing the changes in the coming months. Seniors, aging population, and the cost of housing. We can't move around like we once did because of the cost of housing. So we need to stay put in our homes longer, giving homeowners options to invest in their homes by renovating them to better accommodate any lifestyle changes for that homeowner, making permits easy to get and inspections timely. For me, uh, Yuki's my graveyard. So, you know, I want to ensure that people will be able to age in town. <laughs> they might laugh at that, but it's a reality. And, uh, and, and, and not be forced to move early or waiting months for a building permit because you want to invest in your home. And uh, you know we're fortunate. We have a senior center, and we have I think a ten unit. Is it ten? Yeah. Ten growth, another ten. You know I talked to Dennis. I go every one of these towns should have a seniors ten of them. Like that's not. You shouldn't have to campaign for that stuff. You know that's just a given. And um, and these are not seniors that are need a, you know special assistance. They're just they're a widower, and and it's quite actually a huge hub for for our community uh, that we meet, used to meet there monthly. So, anyways. Um, so we're building a community. It's getting tougher with secondary homes left empty. You mentioned that in small scale, for us the same thing. Non-local investments disrupting the housing stock and it's happening faster and faster. I just wanna make one quick point on grants. We rely on grants to be able to grow. As we all know, grants, for the most part, it's like a lottery. It's hard to run and plan a community based on a lottery model. And if you're successful, there's a long list of conditions with it. And I also want to question the focus on property, on just the continuing focus on property tax to fund our communities. Uculet is very fortunate to have a community forest. And as I mentioned, we also have our hotel tax. And I do not know how we'd be without any either one of those things. And lastly, 
we, all of us, all our communities, we don't get the windfall from things like property transfer tax. Our towns directly benefit from real estate transactions, but the heartbeat of the activity is us, it's our communities, and we get nothing out of it. So much like the resource sector, there is nothing left behind to support a community after a building boom. Okay, I'm over my time. You got your phone. I think that I'm going to steal that quote about the graveyard <laughs> for a different thing. I told because, somebody else, so it's all You know, well, I'm on the... <laughs> I'm on the Age Friendly Action Committee in my community of Tassos. Thank you, Mayor Davis, for being here today. And one of the huge challenges is that people do eventually need to leave because they don't have the services at home that they need. And I'm just ad-libbing here because I didn't prepare this. This is what, you know, for one person's story that I know, there's 10 stories that I don't know. People who've watched their husband die at home but can't do that their own self, they need support. Uh, people who don't have the caregivers that they need. People who have pets they can't take care of because they can't take care of themselves. People who can't drive anymore. We need a bus to Gold River and to Campbell River. The hospital, to the casino, these are things that we talk about on my Age Friendly Action Committee, but we don't have any resources for these things. And so we have some time for questions. Uh, I want to thank everyone here, especially my small, big, thinking dream team. Those who know that smoke, water, people, and even sometimes land move. Now I invite questions, comments, and even stories from the audience. Merci, and you're all welcome. So does anybody have any stories? <laughs> thank you, Sarah, for this together. Wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you spent a lot of time in the background. Yeah. You know, it's been such a joy for me because I know that I'm not alone in Tassis. I know that Tassis' story is replicated in Zabalas' story, is replicated in Alert Bay, in Port Hardy, in Yuki, in Grand Isle, used to be a company town, in Queen Charlotte's, in Gold River, you know, like, I know that when I cry in the river and I'm the Debbie Downer that says, I know too many people who can't afford to move. Like, there's a duplex that my sister lives half in, in Ontario. And the other side of it, that I would love to buy to move to be close to my niece and nephew, is $750,000, but it's on a bus route. And I have to sell seven houses in Tassis <laughs> to get there. And I don't think that's possible. So, I'm probably going to die in Tassis too, and I'm okay with that because it's beautiful and it's by the sea and I got hiking trails and I got hens in my backyard and sometimes roosters, but the wild animals are there and we are the wild animals. We are here because we need Victoria to understand that a lot of value has left our communities and we haven't really seen a return on that. Please come up. Okay, great. Thanks, Sarah. You guys were awesome. You guys did such a great job, all of you. I'm from the village of Queen Charlotte. My name is Lisa Pineau. Um, We have a lot of the same issues that you do on Haida Gwaii in terms of our municipality. Um, one thing that I would say is be careful what you wish for because houses in our community are now going for $750,000 and none of our local people can actually afford to buy them anymore. Um, I don't know who's buying them. Uh, it's so small there that we do know everyone literally, but the Airbnb situation is, is prevalent in our community. We do not have any safeguards or any stops to it. Um, so our rental community for um, people coming in from off island to provide uh, nursing services or um, you know educated jobs, they don't have a rental uh, place to stay. Another offshoot of uh, lack or lesser logging or that resource economy is our community became very reliant on the logging roads. Not only for our community access, but for hunting, fishing, tourism. Now that we have hardly any logging happening, those roads are not being maintained, right? But as a municipality, we get a lot of pressure from people saying, can you, you know, start looking after this road? There is no way in hell we could even, we can't even do roads in our community. Never mind uh, infrastructure roads or developing green roads into a road that would be usable. So this is an offshoot of 
changing from that resource economy, wanting to still have all that infrastructure being used and not having any sort of financial uh, um, uh, stand for it. For our community, we are trying to do, uh, our area, a resource benefit alliance thing with the government. Um, and uh, in a way to try get some of the resources back that we had given for all those years. Because if we don't do that, then we have no money for capital infrastructure. And for us, our largest um, infrastructure demand will be wastewater, right? You know, we currently are under a fisheries order where we are uh, pooling the inlet that we all get food out of with our untreated wastewater. But for our community, which is under a thousand people, we have the uh, latest census is 960. Um, a wastewater facility is $20 million. Yeah. Right? That's why the muscles were so big in that thing. Uh, <laughs> so Those were our, muscles. Our communities are not developed in a grid uh, fashion. Yeah. They're developed along the coast. And that is the worst for infrastructure, right? For wastewater or water. So anyway, those are some of the things that our community is up against right now. We are, uh, of course, working with our First Nations partners and trying to develop uh, service agreements and, and working in that way. But they have similar issues, right? So anyway, thank you. You guys were awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're all awesome because we really work hard and we know our neighbors. This is the thing about small communities is there's no secrets, you know? <laughs> and and I think that like, you know, I'm, I hope you don't feel, uh, oh, can you come up or do you want to talk over there? No, I'm good here. Okay, great. Small room. One of the things that uh, Dennis Dugas from Fort Hardy mentioned is when we formed the Mayor's group, when they formed and I joined later, it, with smaller communities working together and having that voice is so important. I come from a very small community, not as small as the Dallas, mind you. Is anybody? There's 330 people in our village. Right? 330. 330. And uh, that's Sayward for some of you that don't know. But working together with other municipalities and having that strength together because 100 people by themselves is 100 people. It doesn't matter. 300 people by itself, it doesn't matter. So you need to form those coalitions with your neighbors. Now, neighbors does not mean that they're 15 minutes away. Okay? BC, we're neighbors. North Island, we're working together. Other coalitions can be formed. And that's how we're going to affect change. Not individually, it's going to be, I can't say it because this is public. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm learning how to try to not curse work together, call people from other communities, form those coalitions, because that's what's going to get provincial and federal attention. Okay? Sitting at home and bitching about it with the hundred yeah. people or three hundred people you got means nothing. All you're gonna do is sit and bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Call other people, get involved. Yeah. Thank you. Please, jump in there. A question to our, our five mayors that just presented. Have you discussed a program where you need a planner, you need an engineer, of all of you uh, cooperating to get somebody, and they don't have to live in your communities, they could live in Victoria, but with Skype and Zoom and everything else, having one person, one planner, one engineer works for all five communities. Secondly, I suspect getting a doctor in your community is a big problem. Has anybody thought about uh, putting the pressure through our organizations on the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons to have a co-op program to loosen up these extraordinarily tight regulations to bring in doctors? Uh, you know, there's probably 100,000 uh, East Indian doctors who would uh, come here tomorrow and populate these communities, but we have them within right now and nurse practitioners, but getting a co-op program for both, both of those, that to me seems to be the small community way of resolving some of those problems. I, I don't know if you've discussed that. Who's answering that? I, I'll get up to do it, Dennis. I'm a good yapper. I can't. Yeah, you've been quiet for too long. Yeah, I've been quiet for too long. 
no, in, in regards to that, that's a good question because I'll tell you one thing that we did do uh, over the last year uh, with the municipalities and our indigenous nations in, in the North Island. Over the last year, we had 21 power outages. 21 power outages. And uh, one of them happened right at the heat of the summer. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, is the chief of the Quatino band, chief.